Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, August 18th, the Doping for Kids edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 7, Sam 5, and Wally 3. Dan is off this week, but luckily we have the wonderful human and parent, Jessica Winter, filling in. Hi. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm Jessica. I'm also an editor at Slate, and I'm the mom of Devin, who is one. So on today's show, we're going to talk to two out of the three hosts of Slate's wonderful sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, about the beauty and dangers of watching the Olympics with your kids. Then novelist Ruman Alam will join us to discuss uh, a piece he wrote for Slate about the lack of diversity in children's books and why that matters. Plus, Parenting Triumphs and Fails, a listener call about dealing with the parenting judgments of someone you love, uh, which is, seems pretty uni- a, a very universal question, mm-hmm. but with some specific issues and recommendations. And for today's Slate Plus segment, we are switching things up a little bit. Instead of having a Slate staffer on to reveal their own parenting triumph or fail, we are having one of Slate's culture editors, Laura Bennett, on to talk about a mother-daughter triumph or fail that she has experienced as a daughter while planning her wedding with her parents. But before we get to all of that, two quick announcements. Number one, like always, I want you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. But this week, I'd also love you to go there and help one of your fellow listeners uh, who posted on our page asking for recommendations of podcasts that are good for the whole family. So I'll start a thread there um, and give your suggestions and comments. Uh, The listener, Josh, his kids are young. uh, I think he said they were my, my kids age, seven, five, and three. 
Um, but we could take them also for older kids, teenagers. Um, I know a couple of people who listen to this show with their kids, but I don't really recommend it. You don't want to give away all your secrets, your trade secrets to your children or no. your fuck ups. No. Do you listen to any podcasts with Devin? I listen to podcasts all the time with Devin, although as she understands more and more language, I'm going to have to edit down my uh, menu. How about you? Uh, no, we never listen to podcasts. We also don't do like books on tapes. We generally just do like mu- like music is our only audio. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious for listener recommendations. Uh, also, second important announcement. Dan and I would like to do a call-in show in a few weeks, which means we need you to call in and ask us questions or else we can't do the show. So these can be parenting advice questions that you would normally call in with um, or questions about my family or Dan's family or parenting triumphs or fails you want to follow up on or questions about Dan's books or whatever, the future of the show, life in general, or conundrums. What's a good conundrum? Why is Sam age five so awesome at tennis? Is that a conundrum? I want to know why he's so awesome at tennis. Allison has these amazing pictures of Sam playing tennis. It's very weird. It's very strange to see a little child like actually hitting like a two-handed, two, what do they call it? A two-handed backhand? It's very strange. He had a two-handed forehand. Two-handed forehand, Which is controversial. Yes. But anyway, ask us anything is the point. Uh, Call us at 424-255-7833. We really want to hear from you. Okay. On to the actual show, Triumphs and Fails. Jessica. I have a fail. Mm. It's a logistical fail, not a parenting fail, but it directly affects my family, so it counts. We, as Allison knows, are expecting another baby in January, and therefore we have to sell our apartment and move to a bigger place because our place is not big enough. I should have started this process the second I found out I was pregnant because staging an apartment with a toddler in it and selling a place and buying a place and moving are things that take time. But I am a superstitious person and a bit of a catastrophist, and I just wanted to wait until I was well into the second trimester and I knew everything was okay. And I did that. And now we've kind of run out the clock on selling and buying and moving before we've even started the clock. So we're probably not moving before the baby comes. And I completely screwed that up through my own superstitiousness. And I'm kind of bummed about it. I don't know. I mean, what is the real downside of not taking care of this before the baby arrives? Having to move with a newborn. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, that's true. Although having to move like super, super pregnant with a toddler also probably like you wouldn't be moving in your lovely early second trimester state right now. You'd be moving in like the hell of the end, probably. I, I, I kind of like the idea of taking care of one thing and then taking care of something else. You're going to take care of having the baby and then you're going to have the baby and then you're going to take care of the next thing. Yeah. I mean, everyone's going to have a place to live. I mean, my refrain through my entire adult life is, well, it's not like you're going to be out on the street. And that is my refrain right now. (laughs) Right. Yes. (laughs) You always know things are bad when that's that's the thing you're saying to comfort yourself. All right. Okay. I'll accept it as a fail, but I don't really think it's that bad. Um, and I'm excited to be very, very close part of it. I really love house hunting when it's not for myself. So <laughs> I would like to be deep and very involved. Allison is a great house hunting buddy. 
Uh, she will always send you links, 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 links. Truly, I really it, should yeah. be an advertiser on our show. I know someone I know. like whenever I mention things like that, people are like, "Are that is is Amazon actually advertising in your show?" Trulia, Zillow, if you're out there, oh, yeah. we're waiting for you. So, um, do you have a triumph or a fail this week? I have a f- triumph. I awesome. was going to say fail because I didn't write it down, but it's actually a triumph. <laughs> so, I feel like I've talked so much on the show about Harry and flag football. Um, but finally, we he started flag football, um, and he started in not the less intense uh, program that I was hoping to have him be part of, and I was trying to start. But instead, he we weren't able to do that program, so instead, he's doing the quite intense uh, local Pop Warner program, which is four days a week, two hours a night, six to eight p.m. Uh, and that's after like a really full, pretty full day of camp from like eight until five. So it's a lot for a little schmo like Harry. Uh, and on the first day, I actually didn't take him on the first day. John took him and sent me, was texting me pictures. He stayed, it's drop off, but he like stayed the first day to make sure everything was okay because we're like that. Um, and even though Harry actually didn't want him to stay, Anyway, he was texting me pictures of Harry, like, on this huge, real, you know, football field. It's like the high school football field or whatever. And I was, like, so excited for him. And when he got home from practice, he was sobbing. Um, I think what happened, well, I think a couple of things happened. I think, one, he didn't realize it was going to be so late. And so Mm -hmm. when he got home and saw what time it was, and it meant he wasn't going to get to watch his show, which he usually watches like a show after dinner at night, uh, that was like too much for him. Mm. But I think that was only after sort of a really hard (laughs) practice where, as he said, nobody even asked my name. It was not like this, what he's used to, sweet little sports program where everyone, you know, starts in a circle and goes around and says their name and they start slow. And it was very much like, hey, everybody get out here. Okay, push-ups. Okay, run. And, like, some kids knew what was happening and some kids didn't, and he definitely didn't. And I think that, you know, freaked him out. Uh, And he said he wanted to quit. He hated it, not going back. And we said, you can't quit. Uh, We signed up for this. You, you know, we talked about this, and we have to give it a try. Like, we didn't say you can never quit, although I think later John and I discussed, like, I think we can't let him quit this. He doesn't ever have to do it again. But, like, we think, unless it's, like, deeply traumatic he needs to see it through um but especially not after one night so that was you know i felt a little bit queasy about that because part of me wanted just to let him like never go back again because they didn't even ask his name that was like the thing that he said that i kept harping on and john was like who cares anyway the triumph is that then he went back under protest and had a really good time the second night and had a really good time the third night and had a really good time the fourth night and we drop or our sitter would drop him and I would go pick him up and watch like the last 15 minutes. And holy shit, like it's really hard. They're really making them do like really difficult, strenuous things. And they really are barking at them and they really don't care what his name is. And ultimately, like, I don't know if I've convinced myself of this because John convinced me of it or if it's if I'm really convinced. But I feel like I'm really convinced that, A, I'm really proud of him that he like rose to the challenge. And I think he actually felt really good about rising the challenge, which taught me sort of a a lesson of, you know, like, I shouldn't be freaked out by him being freaked out. Like, let's, he can push himself a little bit. Uh, and, and yeah, like, John's take on it, and I think I agree, is, like, it's good for him and probably for most kids to, like, most kids who are, who whose lives are predominantly coddled to maybe <laughs> not be. Uh, so the 
triumph is really Harry's, but I feel a little bit of a parenting triumph in like not caving to my own emotions and fears and like letting him deal with something that he doesn't like and coming out on top. Yeah. And I like the point that you're making about this like comfy context he has for this one thing in his life where, you know, everything else that Harry's doing, everyone knows his name and it's warm and comforting and he feels full of love. And then there's this one weird fucking thing he does every night where it's not like that. And that's kind of interesting, I'm I'm sure, and kind of like breaks him into a new way of thinking. And that's awesome. I think so. I think so. What okay. do you think clicked on the second on the second night? Because um, it sounds it sounds like he he you know he flipped the, he he just had to get through that one bad day and then he was okay. What do you think switched for him? Um, I'm really not sure. I mean, one you know, John said to him like they're being so hard on you because they're trying to get you to quit. Like they and and I was like, that's not the right thing to say. <laughs> like why why are you telling him that? And then we had a conversation where. I was like, I don't really think they're trying to get you to quit. They're trying to, like, get you to show them what you got. Like, yeah. show them yeah. at, what you can give. I mean, he's seven. This sounds so stupid. But – and I think somehow that, like, appealed to him, you know? Yeah, Especially because yeah. he's, like, on our block. He's used to being, like, the good athlete. And in that context, I think he's not. He's just some right. little shrimp. And I right. think he actually um, liked the idea of proving himself. Yeah, it's a new level for him to rise to. That's really exciting. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our first segment. Over the past week plus, I have derived a lot of pleasure out of watching the Olympics with my kids and their cousins. Cheering for athletes and feats of athleticism is really fun with unjaded little human beings. However, as I was sitting on the couch cheering USA, USA at another Katie Ledecky win while sitting on the couch with my niece and nephew who live in Israel, pretending world records are crushed nightly simply because of hard work and gymnast bodies are just made that way, I wondered if maybe I was teaching my own kids the wrong message. So, here to tell me whether I should ignore these issues in favor of fun with family or deliver a dinnertime lecture on doping are two out of the three hosts of Slate's fantastic sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, Josh Levine and Mike Pesca. Oh, man, I was hoping Stefan would be one, but okay. <laughs> Hello, Hi. guys. I don't believe you're really chanting USA, USA. I did. I was. Me. No. You really said USA, no, USA. Never yes, I did. I did. I mean, Why are you lying like... to your listeners, Allison? And then were, were you, you yelling, making... build that wall? <laughs> <laughs> Only you. <laughs> All right. To warm things up, Josh, you've been running Slate's really great Olympics coverage, and you love the Olympics, but you also kind of think they're horrible, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I think I think I can hold those two thoughts in my mind simultaneously. Okay, sure. so let's focus on the horrible. What is horrible, and should I be ignoring that stuff while raising young, impressionable people? How long is the segment again? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's the commercialization of it. There is the you know there are the horrible things that befall the communities where the Olympics is hosted and the kind of buildings that get raised and people that get kicked out to build these venues that nobody is going to be using in, you know, five minutes. There is the cheating and the doping. But to me, that seems like a good opportunity to talk with your kids about um, which drugs improve your performance and <laughs> which ones might not. <laughs> there are just so many great learning opportunities there. But I don't know. I mean, the Olympics come along so infrequently and they are in this kind of 
atomized world that we live in, one of the few mass cultural products that I feel like giving ourselves permission and allowance to cheer unthinkingly is fine. That's my my general philosophy because we have so much time and opportunity to just be off on our own rooting for whatever we, we root for individually. That just the kind of fellow feeling and community around it, I think, is really cool. Yeah. Do you want the kind of kids who say, my God, look at the amount of weight that guy lifted above his head or the kind of kids who say, yeah, but what about his Toradol and the B sample? I mean, how old are you? I have. I two- mean, probably the latter. <laughs> I have I have two boys. Well, you have like seven boys. Right? Yes, exactly. Uh, one. So here are some great things about the Olympics rather than USA, USA. Watching sports, which we've talked about, is a good thing. But you've got to know the rules. And especially if you're watching American sports, there's so much depth to them that sometimes uh, you got to really wonder you know, is it worth my time to orient them as to baseball or football? But when it comes to Olympics, mostly you're watching people running fast or swimming fast or throwing far. And that's really easily graspable. And if not, it's a combat sport and you can kind of tell who's winning. My son was watching wrestling the other day and wrestling, there's some doping in wrestling, but it's not like gymnastics or one of these sports, which really, you know, warps childhood. And he showed a real interest. And I said, this is the first time he's ever watched. It was actually Greco-Roman wrestling. I'm like, that'd be great if the kid got into wrestling. And I'd say 90%, 90-something percent of the Olympic sports, if the kid watched it one time and showed an interest in it, you definitely want to have him or her pursue that interest. And another thing I would say, since we you and I both have all boys, they are just as interested in the women's sports and women running fast and throwing far as men. There's like absolutely no barrier in their minds. I don't know if that's because it's 2016. I just think it's actually more inherent when people run fast. That's something you want to see. So I think the Olympics for people who are under the age of 13, where they really don't have to know about all these subtleties and all these shadings are mostly an unalloyed good the gender thing is interesting because I agree. My kids have been really excited about the female athletes in a way that they're actually not outside of the Olympics. Like, they don't want to watch, like, the WNBA or, you know, I mean, and they, they actually often, like, say, I don't know, somewhat sexist things about women in sports. But here it seems to have faded. Well, is it so, if you're a little boy and you're like, oh, girls, is that sexist <laughs> or is that being a little boy? <laughs> I guess it's being a little boy. But, I mean, it's also like thinking girls aren't strong or can't, you know, yeah. can't. And this is a good correction to a that. A really good yeah. one, yeah. All right, Jessica, you've written a bunch for Slate uh, about gymnastics. What will you tell Devin about gymnastics four years from now when she's... Well, four years from now, if she continues growing on the track that she's on, she will be seven feet tall. So um, I think a future in elite gymnastics is probably already beyond her. But, you know, I have a feeling that she will respond to gymnastics the way a lot of little girls do. And I think it's going to be an opportunity for us to admire um, these amazing feats that they pull off. And I think if Devin does express an interest in gymnastics, I, you know, I think Mike really touched on something good there, which is like the under 13 or maybe the under 10-ness of it all. Like they don't have to know about all the, you know, the, the very dark side of, of gymnastics and they can just see it as like, oh, maybe I can do some version of that. I was always very uncomfortable with my body growing up, and I, you know, I never took tumbling or dancing classes or anything like that. So if she had an interest in learning how to fling her body around and do flips, I could not be more excited, and I guess I'll just deal with the bad stuff later. 
the whole like line at 13 or 10 or whatever it is. I know you guys are thinking I'm taking this too seriously. Maybe I am. But like, so you lie to your I'm kids. I'm just concerned that you're xenophobic. <laughs> Shingoistic. <laughs> USA, USA. <laughs> you're not rooting for the Americans? Well, we can talk about that. Okay, hold on. Let's get to that in a second. But if you're drawing the line at whatever line it is and you're not telling them, you know, these guys are just breaking the world records because they're amazing athletes and we're just getting better and better and better. And then when they have their bar mitzvah, you're like, psych! (laughs) 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 Isn't that sort of the wrong approach? Shouldn't it be better to, like, you know, say these guys are amazing athletes but also... Well, I have discussions with the kids where I say, you know why there are no Russians there? Here's what the Russians did. Oh. They cheated. So cheating is bad. But you can't point to someone and say, see see that amazing performance? Take it with a grain of salt. Don't fully commit to the joy of that performance. He might be cheating. Why That's, can't you? I do that I, to, in my own head. <laughs> yeah, I know. Are you happy about that? <laughs> I also think as we're talking, I think the Olympics in a way is meant for children or at least NBC means its coverage to work on children because there are real no shades of coverage and there's nothing really to grapple with. And these host cities bid on it as uh, tourism and as postcards for their cities. And so if you're a kid, where I could talk to my kids, hey, look at Brazil, and Brazil's the fifth biggest country in the world, and here are some cool things in Brazil. Would you like to go to Brazil one day? And then maybe if they were 12 or 13 or 14, we'd talk about corruption and uh, conglomerates that are under indictment and possible uh, possible Dilma Rousseff impeachments, right? It will all come. But the, the reason that these countries even bid for the games is so 10-year-olds can look at them and go, ooh, I want to go to Qatar where they had the World Cup. <laughs> All right, let's go back to the jingoism. Are you rooting for America, Josh? For sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it depends on the sport, I guess. You feel a little bit weird and guilty about rooting for the NBA players. Yeah, what about Australia? You That's where it really uh, came. I really struggled with myself. I kind of wanted Australia to beat the USA in basketball. Because I like all of those individual players, and uh-huh. I enjoy watching them. And the NBA, but just as a kind of conglomerate, <laughs> they're hard to get behind because you do want to feel like when you're watching these athletes, and NBC obviously does this so well, that there's a kind of story behind it that they've had to overcome something and work hard. Or there's also like the Ledecky and Phelps of it, where, and I feel this way about LeBron James and Roger Federer and and I did about Tiger Woods too. Whereas a sports fan, I sort of like feeling like I'm in the presence of greatness. Like I'm watching the greatest who's ever done this. And so in that sense, you want them to do well because like, oh, is it more fun to watch the greatest athlete ever win or to watch some like loser upset, um, you know, Michael Phelps and then like Michael Phelps becomes less great. No, you want you want the greatest to be even greater. I just feel like there's a, there are different ways to root. It depends on the sport. And I just can't really help feeling, you know, happy for, for my fellow Americans. And I'm una- unapologetic about it. What do you think? I really miss the Cold War Olympics. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was a pretty young kid, but wow, was that great. I don't know. I think it gave me like a little bit of a bigger perspective on the world to, to come up watching Olympics where Americans were regularly getting their ass kicked. 
You know, I, it just gave me a sense that, you know, there's a lot of amazing people and countries out there. I also, I grew up near the Canadian border, so we always watched the CBC coverage. My dad, like, would not allow the NBC coverage to be beamed into our house because <laughs> it was so awful. So I grew up with that as received wisdom. Um, and, you know, one of the things he hated about the NBC coverage was how jingoistic it was and how, you know, if it wasn't a, a sport or an event that an American could conceivably dominate, then it just didn't exist or, you know, an American bronze medalist would get tons more attention than a Russian gold medalist or, or whatever. So, yeah, I kind of love it when, you know, an underdog from a smaller country comes out of nowhere um, to smoke a, an American in an event that they weren't supposed to. Sorry, Josh. What you're t- saying is totally logical and rational. But as I was saying before about how bad should we feel about the Olympics and should we tell our kids that they're like a rotten cesspool? I mean, it just functions as escapism for for me and for a lot of people. And I just feel like you can understand. And sports does that in a larger sense. I just feel like you can have the like logical Jessica Winter side of you and just push it, <laughs> push it to, to the left or to the right and just Benedict style chant USA USA <laughs> on your couch and not feel bad about it, even though we know Allison didn't actually do that. <laughs> but I think it's a, I think it's okay to root. I think kids naturally want to root for things because they're pretty much divorced or haven't yet acquired a huge super ego or anxiety or complicating factors. So we were watching some wrestling and it was some guy in a red unitard versus some guy in a blue unitard and Emmett said, who should I root for? And I said, definitely the Ukrainians. So we started rooting for the guy in the red unitard. And then there's the other thing where if you know a little bit about the athletes, like in, in Hurdles, there was this uh, teenage girl from New Jersey. So so it wasn't just an American. It was a kid from New Jersey and her dad's yeah. wearing a Giants shirt in the stands. So any bit of connection on the world stage, kids really respond to. And by the way, this is almost exactly how adults root for things, too. How do you decide whether to get your kids into Greco-Roman wrestling or freestyle wrestling? <laughs> well, uh, Milo likes to shoot for the legs, but uh, Emmett <laughs> is more of an upper body grappler. So, <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you very much. I feel okay about watching the Olympics with my kids. Thanks, guys. Uh, you're very welcome. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, on to our listener call. Every week, Allison and Dan take a listener call and try to answer it. Got questions? Call them at 424-255-7833. They want to hear from you. This week, we have a call from Sarah. Hi, Allison and Dan. My name is Sarah, and I have a question. My brother has been in a relationship with the same woman for six years now. She's been working in early childhood education for something like 20 years. She knows so much about what is best for young children from an educator's and caretaker's perspective, but important, she does not have any children. She's fairly passive-aggressive with her judgment, often just raising her eyebrows, looking on silently while I struggle to handle a situation and saying, hmm, when I explain myself with no further comment. 
She also rarely gets involved physically, just stands by and watches how I handle stuff, even when I might be loaded down with suitcases and my son is wandering away on the sidewalk. We never really know what she thinks we should be doing differently because she never comes right out and says it, including times I've specifically asked for her advice. My relationship with her is important to me. She's very sensitive, so I do not know if there is any way to speak to her about my feelings without permanently altering or potentially destroying our friendship, but I can't keep doing this. As I'm sure is true for most parents, I'm not always confident that I'm making the right decisions, but I rest firmly in the parenting camp of you got to do what you got to do, something I also have never shared with her, as I'm sure she disapproves. It's hard enough dealing with my own judgment. I don't really need any outside help. It's only July, and I'm already having severe anxiety over their upcoming visit at Christmas. So I guess my question boils down to this. How do I deal with a childless expert on children in the family? Oh, there's so much going on here. (laughs) Um, Okay, first of all, Sarah, you you say that you guys are good friends, but you you also say that it sounds like you don't see her more than a few times a year. So I'm a little torn. The fact that you have a close friendship with her makes me want to say you need an intervention. You need to sit down. You need to state very clearly to her what is bothering you about this dynamic. But the fact that you don't see her all that frequently makes me of a completely different mind and thinks that you should just treat it as static. It's extremely hard to treat a good friend as static. But I, I think if she's humming and humphing you and being passive, passive aggressive around the holidays, and it doesn't sound like she's the kind of person who's going to change or who you can talk into being a different person, I'm wondering if the path of least resistance is just to not try not to absorb the. I know that's easier said than than done, but not try to absorb the the commentary or try to treat her commentary as as something humorous or something that's happening to someone else. We've talked on the show before about detachment from difficult situations, and maybe that's what you need to do. Uh, I just gave you two very contradictory opinions, so I want Allison to weigh in. I'm going to agree with the latter. I mean, I think, especially because it sounds like there's nothing you're really going to be able to hang your um, intervention on because she's not actually saying anything. As far as I can tell, like she's humming and she's raising her eyebrows. Like that's not that easy. I don't think you want to like get weighed into like a fight over eyebrow raising. It would be easier if she actually like was calling you out on your parenting and then you could actually. I don't use know. That. that stuff is real and it can be, it can get under your skin even uh, more than a direct comment. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm just saying it's difficult to, yeah. to use yeah. in a conversation. Yeah. Um, and also as a person who I, I might be unfairly um, putting myself in your place, but like, when I'm feeling insecure about my own parenting, I also tend to see more of that coming from other people. I'm not saying that's not that's what you're doing, but um, you know, I think that uh, I think in this instance, it's better to let it go, try to be confident in what you are doing, and also if she really does know what she's doing in terms of like the fact that she doesn't have a kid, obviously she doesn't get like so, some of the like messy nitty gritty of it or a lot of the messy nitty gritty of it or any of the nitty gritty of it. But, you know, that doesn't mean she doesn't have good advice to provide. So my advice would be to try to be as confident as you can be. And I know that's not always easy um, in your own parenting. And yeah, try to tune out um, her 
hmms and eyebrow raises and um, keep in mind what you said on the call, which is that she doesn't have kids. And so she doesn't necessarily really know what you're going through. So even if she is judging you, those judgments aren't necessarily worth you um, absorbing. And I know that's really hard to do, but yeah, I mean, this probably will come to a head in some like drunken Christmas Eve dinner. <laughs> Call us after that. But in the meantime, I would I would go with Jessica's second piece of advice, which is to try to let it go. Okay, thanks for your call, Sarah. Listeners, call us for our call-in show for next time, and then call us for our regular shows beyond 424-255-7833. On to our next segment. In Ezra Jack Keats's classic, The Snowy Day, a little boy named Peter wakes up one morning to find that snow has blanketed his world overnight, and we follow him through a day that is at once wholly ordinary and wondrous. Writing for Slate's children's book blog, Nightlight, the novelist Ruman Alam calls The Snowy Day one of America's most beautiful depictions of a little black boy. Ruman himself has two black sons, and in his Slate piece, he goes on to say, When I look at the library we've built for our kids, I do wish for more books for children that followed Keats's lead, books that use children who look like mine to capture the magic and the mundane as the best books for children do. Ruman, who is also the author of the terrific novel Rich and Pretty, which you should definitely check out, joins us in our Brooklyn studio now. Welcome, Ruman. Thank you for having me. So in your piece, you argue for more books like The Snowy Day and also Don Freeman's brilliant book Corduroy, which present black children as the heroes, not of issue-driven stories, but what you call utterly quotidian stories. But you also acknowledge that asking for more kids like this is like asking for more novels like Anna Karenina. Right, right, (laughs) Um, What what to you is, is the brilliance of The Snowy Day? The Snowy Day is a beautiful book, and you see it in every bookstore, and you see it... More importantly, where most, I, where I think most Americans buy their books, you see it at Target, you see it at the airport, you see it at the CVS. And there's a reason, because it is a sort of timeless, acultural artifact. It seems to come from a kind of somewhat dated depiction of urban life in the 50s, but it still feels really relevant because the focus is so tight on the protagonist and this sort of magical landscape um, there's something about the snowy day that I love is that <clears throat> Peter looks different throughout the book. The artistic treatment of the protagonist himself changes. Sometimes you see him in silhouette and his features are very vague. Sometimes you see him up close and he looks really different. And that to me seems to connect with how childhood works, where every day feels different. Every moment feels different. Your mind is sort of unformed, either either unformed or more formed, it's hard to say. And that is such a magical thing, and I think Keats captures it so beautifully. And it just so happens that Peter is Black. And in my piece, I say this, that, you know, stripping the Blackness out of that does the book a disservice because part of what's so great about it is that Peter is Black and that you're seeing a Black experience depicted. But you're seeing it depicted in this way that it is really universal and you don't have to be a black parent or child to connect with and love the book. And I think that is what is so remarkable about it. Right, right. It 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 seems from your piece that you've had an easy time finding children's books with black faces about the civil rights movement or about slavery, but not necessarily about a snowy day or a little girl saving money to buy a teddy bear. Um, and your argument is that both of these books 
both of these kinds of books are important, but the latter kind of book were, were kind of lacking. For sure. I think I realized after I published this piece that this is a little bit like the father who has a daughter and then suddenly declares himself a feminist, <laughs> is the, which is the worst kind of awakening. And what I say in this piece is not is something that many, many Black parents have said to me, and surely many Black parents have been saying for a long time, that the treatment of Blackness in the popular culture lags. And the audience for my piece, I, I heard a lot, mostly on Twitter, but I heard a lot of sort of, yes, well said, totally agree, from other readers and other writers and other parents. But really, the person who I hope read my piece is the editorial directors of the children's divisions of the major publishers in this city. Because independent authors via Kickstarter or, you know, just by doing it themselves, and small presses, all sorts of people have set out to challenge exactly what I'm talking about, which is that the sort of dominant children's literature is so white. The people who really need to affect a change, who are in the best position to affect a cultural change, are the people who really run the big houses and can get their books into Target, into Bye Bye Baby. And those are the people who I hope read this piece and see when they look at their lists, oh yeah, we don't have a lot of Black protagonists who aren't a little Rosa Parks or a little George Washington Carver, you know? And those books are extremely valuable for sure. My sons are turning seven and four, and the last thing I feel like reading to them right now is a book about slavery. Mm. They have their entire lives to confront the legacy, the historical legacy that that is theirs and ours, actually. But childhood is such a brief window, and you should be allowed to not know and not understand everything. You know, when my when my younger son, he's four, he's turning four, and when he's working through a sentence or something, sometimes my older son will correct his grammar or his words. And I always want to tell him not to because you only have this brief window where you can mispronounce a word or misunderstand the English language, and it's okay, you know? And I just think that childhood is this sort of golden moment, and it's so brief. And I hate to see the ugly facts of our society intrude on that. Do you remember growing up feeling like, I mean, probably not something you could articulate, but feeling like I'm looking at all of these white kids in these books? You know, I don't. I, I, I'm I not white. I'm Indian. And uh, I don't have that particular sense, which I think is actually more damning because I think it shows the extent to which we assume, even readers who are not white, assume a default whiteness in the heroes of the stories that we're told. And it's not until kind of looking at the literature now as a parent of, of black children that I realize how wrong that is. And you see this time and again, every time, um, like Simone Biles, every time somebody in the culture sort of breaks a record or achieves at that level, you realize how meaningful it is to children and adults. And, that's great on the one hand, but really terrible on the other How hand. How rare You know, yeah. yeah. Um, did you get any—after after writing this piece, have you gotten suggestions of books that— I did. And, you know, that that is one of the great things about the internet is that <laughs> I heard from a lot of book bloggers and independent publishers and independent publicists and, you know, artists and writers who, you know, publish their work themselves. And that's great. And the truth is that 
for somebody like me, for somebody like us, I have an education, I have the means, I can sit and take the time and build a reading list that I want to. But really, who I wrote this piece for is is the people who can't do that. And and most people can't. Right. You know, most people can't. And those people and their children also need these books. And every reader would benefit from a more inclusive or more representative understanding of what, you know, who a protagonist can be in a children's book. Every reader. Because that is the world that we live in, and it's not the world that we see on the page. There's a gap there. And... So yes, I, I value all of the reading suggestions I've received. And initially, I actually didn't want to build this piece around the snowy day. I wanted to, I wanted to build it around a contemporary book that had just come into our lives mm-hmm. at the local public library. My kids, uh, that the kids go to on New York Avenue here in Brooklyn, by a woman named Barbara McClintock. It's called Emma and Julia Love Ballet. And it's about a little girl going to a ballet performance. And it's sort of contrast this little girl and her love for ballet and this ballerina's love for ballet. And the ballerina in this book happens to be black. And the depiction of her is sort of unmistakably black. She has a dark complexion. She has African-American features. She really, she looks like a black woman. And that is, has nothing to do with the plot of the book. The book is just about loving ballet. My younger son happens to love ballet. And when I saw that, you know, that book came home to us via the library, and I have this sense that librarians, I know, I know children's librarians are so at the fore of thinking about this, that there's a reason that that book is in the library. And I'm glad that it is. And I just wish that there were more books like that around. One, I was actually going to ask you, both of you guys, because you're both publishing world people. Um, I'm not, you know, what you thought the publishing world needed to do, but you you said that on your own. But the other factor seems to me that schools have a role to play here. like in- For sure. And But again, I just think that, you know, if, if you're an educational institution operating on a limited budget, there are only so many ways that you can go and you're going to go to the big houses yeah. that can, you know, give you the kinds of deals that you need. And... So it's really a, it's a commercial problem and not so much a cultural one. But in this country, the two are really the same. And I, I, th- I do think that this will change. And I do think that as I mean, I'm 39 now. And when I go to see my publisher and I see all the young women, it's almost all women who are, you know, at their desks on the front lines. And I look at them and, I, and these are women of such intellect and such ambition, I'm like, okay, 10 years from now, you guys are going to be the ones whose name is on my contract with me. And you are aware of what needs to happen. So I do think this is going to change. But I I just, I wish that more publishers were willing to roll the dice on this because, yeah, it's just, it's got to change. You know, one of the great things that came out of your piece is that usually the comment sections on Slate are just total cesspools. Um, but your comment section was awesome. It was full of people um, listing other children's books they love that feature Black kids just being kids. And I just wanted to call out um, Mia Birdsong, who's an occasional contributor to Slate. She had a list that sounded great. I, I looked all these up on Amazon. Feast for Ten by Caitlin Falwell. Olu's Dream by Shane Evans. Not Norman by Noah Jones. And Raising Dragons by Jardine Nolan. Are there any you would add to that list? Oh, that's so, I mean, that is great. And it's true that the comments were remarkable. And I think that's testament to the fact that there is no dearth of black illustration and storytelling. That is not the issue. The issue is really sort of the commercial muscle behind 
writers who want to tell a broader kind of story. But this, the books that we have really loved in our house are anything that's illustrated by Kadir Nelson, who's an illustrator of immense talent. He did a wonderful book for Spike Lee and his wife, I think her name is Tanya Lee, called Please Baby Please, which is just a really wonderful depiction of a really beautiful black baby who misbehaves also like so it's like a really real representation of childhood and then we have this other book called um clean your room harvey moon that i love because it's like again it's just a very realistic depiction of a little black boy who doesn't want to clean his room and that's what i mean like the magical stuff of childhood is really in those everyday things of not sharing your ball and not cleaning your room I'll throw one more in uh, Last Stop on Market Street by oh, Matt Delapena, who yeah. actually, he came on, um, he was a guest on our live show in Brooklyn a couple of months ago, and he he was really a great guest, has a lot of interest in what we're talking about yeah. here, um, and, and I really love that book. Those all sound fantastic. We'll pull together a complete list uh, and put it on our show page. Ruman Alam is the author of the novel Rich and Pretty, and his piece for Nightlight is called We don't only need more diverse books. We need more diverse books like The Snowy Day. Ruman, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, on to recommendations. Uh, I'll go first. My recommendation was actually going to be my second fail, but I'm going to turn lemons into lemonade. My recommendation is, if you have old kids' clothes to offload, give them away. Do not try to sell them. Do not treat it as an opportunity to subsidize your lifestyle. (laughs) This, is, this has been a very humbling lesson for me this past week. Uh, I had all these adorably gently used clothes of Devon's, just shopping bags and shopping bags full of super cute stuff. I priced them at like a buck fifty per item and I put them on my local listserv and I got no takers, not one taker, not even for the Marameco floral print snowsuit with the tag still on. Those people have terrible taste. Outrage. Um, this is, by the way, a listserv where you can say, hey, I accidentally bought a big thing of diapers in the wrong size. They're all yours for 50% off. No, and I've, u- I've only used half of them. Like People sell like half used containers of baby food, but not your dresses. Yep. Um, yeah, they'll be banging on your door for your half used baby food. Um, so then I this was the really humiliating part. I, I repriced the clothes so that the unit price I used to work in a grocery store. The unit price was like 50 cents per item and still no takers. I think I have a taker for the 12 to 18 month stuff, maybe. Um, but basically a zilch. So I think I'm on the brink of giving them away. If you live in the Flatbush or Ditmas Park area of Brooklyn, New York, and want some mega cute stuff for your girl, if you wait till next week, I will most likely be paying you to take these clothes away from me. Uh, And that is my recommendation. I have two things to say about that. Number one, I think the reason people don't grab clothes anymore on New York City listservs is bedbugs. Now, I'm not saying to a national audience that you (laughs) and your daughter have bedbugs, but... I think about that, or I did think about that before I moved to the bedbug-free suburbs <laughs> uh, where everything is clean. I didn't even think about that. Uh, okay. I think that's part of it. And also, um, maybe you should just give them away to charity. They're actually like churches that will come pick them up from your house, which makes it super easy. No, I should. I should. It was just I had this precedent of like constantly having an extra box of diapers and like getting 10 bucks back for it. And I just thought the the same mechanism would be at work and, and it's not. But yes, I should give them to charity. 
okay, my recommendation is more straightforward than that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a book. Um, a lovely old book that my sister brought with her when we were on vacation together last week, and I ended up reading it to Wally every night because he kept requesting it. It's called Alexander and the Wind-Up Mouse, and it was written by the Dutch author and illustrator Leo Leone and published in 1969. Is that a name that's familiar to you? No, but we're still on, like, board books and ABCs, so it wouldn't be. Well, it's not a name that was familiar to me either, but I looked him up, and he apparently was a famous old children's book author, but I'd never read any of his books. Um, It's about a friendship between a real mouse named Alexander and a toy mouse, Willie. And Willie also is, like... Now my new favorite name. I guess it sounds like Wally, so that makes sense. But oh, I think yeah. Willie is such a cute name. Uh, and it's just a really cute, wonderful story about like little minor jealousies and loyalty and love. Uh, and I kind of wonder if it inspired Toy Story. I didn't do any reading on that, but it has like a huh. little bit of the underlying theme of that. Anyway, it's a great book for preschoolers, Alexander and the Wind-Up Mouse. And that's our show. So visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. And don't forget to leave your suggestions of podcasts to listen to with your kids. Send us an email at momanddad at slate.com to suggest guests or topics. And don't forget also to call us with questions for the call-in show at 424-255-7833. Mom and Dad are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. Check out Panoply's full roster of shows at itunes.com slash panoply. Thanks to our new producer, Afim Shapiro. Thanks, Afim. Thanks to Steve Lichtai, the managing producer of Slate Podcast, and Andy Bowers, head of Panoply. Thanks to our guests, Josh Levine, Mike Pesca, and Ruman Alam. Thank you so much for hosting with me, Jessica. Thanks, Allison. Thank you all for listening. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.